Can you dream of a world immune to cancer? Hello everyone, my name is Nick and I'm the host of the annual live stream for The Cure where content creators and podcasters from around the world join me to raise money for the Cancer Research Institute and Immunotherapy Research, which is training the body's immune system to fight against all forms of cancer. Over the past seven years, thanks to the power of indie podcasters and the indie podcasting community and listeners just like you listening to this right now, we have raised over $90,000. And as I record this now, the eighth annual live stream for The Cure is barreling down upon us really, really quickly in just about two weeks. So join us, please, from May 29th through June 1st for 48 hours of amazing content from people all over the world and help us fight for a world immune to cancer. And I'll return you to your regularly scheduled programming. Thank you so, so much. And together, we can make a difference. Twas a long time ago, longer now than it seems, in a place that perhaps you've seen in your dreams. For the story that you are about to be told took place in the holiday worlds of old. Now you've probably wondered where holidays come from. If you haven't, I'd say it's time you've begun. In a world overflowing with movies, we need a hero. Someone to separate the bad from the good. everyone, I'm Em and welcome to Verbal Diorama episode 186, The Nightmare Before Christmas. This is the podcast that's all about the history and legacy of movies you know and movies you don't. And Merry Christmas, Happy Holidays, welcome to Verbal Diorama, whether you're a brand new listener to this podcast, whether you're a regular returning listener, thank you for being here, thank you for being here at Christmas time and I'm so happy to have you here for the history and legacy of The Nightmare Before Christmas. This is the final episode of Verbal Diorama of 2022 and also officially the first episode of animation season 2023 because how could I not start animation season off with what may not be the first full-length stop-motion animation but definitely is the most ambitious. How could I not finish 2022 with a Christmas classic or is it a Halloween classic? Do you know what? It doesn't matter. It's both. And honestly, I'm so delighted to be bringing you this episode Christmas. Before I start, I just want to say a huge thank you to everyone who's listened to the most recent episodes of this podcast. They've had a Christmas tinge to them, these episodes. Edward Scissorhands and, of course, The Muppet Christmas Carol. I guess as well, I just have to say a huge thank you to everyone who's just completely embraced Verbal Diorama in 2022. It's been an absolute joy for me to do this podcast, to make these episodes for you every week. I love doing what I do. I've been doing it for almost four years now, and I have no intention, no intention whatsoever of stopping what I'm doing. But this is the greatest Christmas gift for me to have my podcast in your ears right now. And the fact that you're listening to this episode. Thank you so much. Genuinely, I can't tell you how much I appreciate it. 
And it has been a bit of a weird amount of Tim Burton this month. And I realise that I've done Batman Returns and I've done Edward Scissorhands this month. And now I'm back with Tim Burton. But while this was Burton's idea, and it was technically his name above the door, his actual involvement was very little on the creation and the production of The Nightmare Before Christmas. We're going to go into all of that. There's so much to go into on this movie. But for now, here's the trailer for The Nightmare Before Christmas. Welcome to an extraordinary world filled with magic and wonder. Open your mind and let yourself go to a place where every day is Halloween and every night Jack Skellington I am the Pumpkin King! dreams of something different. What is this? It's someplace new. Jack, look out! What's this? What's this? There's color everywhere. What's this? There's white things in the air. What's this? I can't believe my eyes. I must be dreaming. Wake up, Jack. This is What is this? Haven't you heard of peace on earth and goodwill toward men? <laughs> Touchstone Pictures presents the enchanting story of two very special dreamers and the holiday spirit that brought them together. From the imagination of Tim Burton comes The Nightmare Before Christmas. And what did Santa bring you, honey? <laughs> Jack Skellington, the Pumpkin King of Halloween Town, is bored with doing the same thing every year for Halloween. One day he stumbles into Christmas Town and is so taken with the idea of Christmas that he tries to get the resident bats, ghouls and goblins of Halloween Town to help him put on Christmas instead of Halloween. And to do that, they have to start with kidnapping Santa Claus. We'll quickly run through the cast. We have Chris Sarandon as Jack Skellington, with Danny Elfman as Jack's singing voice, Catherine O'Hara as Sally, William Hickey as Dr Finkelstein, Glenn Shaddix as the Mayor of Halloween Town, Ken Page as Oogie Boogie and Ed Ivory as Santa Claus. The Nightmare Before Christmas has a screenplay by Caroline Thompson, an adaptation by Michael McDowell of a story by Tim Burton and was directed by Henry Selick. And as I said, Tim Burton, a guy I've never spoken about before on this podcast. Pause for laughs. Uh, if you haven't listened to any previous Tim Burton-based episodes, such as Beetlejuice, Corpse Bride, Batman, Batman Returns, Mars Attacks, or Edward Scissorhands, here's a previously on Verbal Diorama for The Life and Times of Tim Burton. So, he grew up, he went to work as an animator, storyboard artist, graphic designer, art director, and concept artist at Walt Disney Productions Animation Division. His concept art would never make it into the finished films, but he would contribute to The Fox and the Hound, Tron, and The Black Cauldron. And it was during his time at Disney in 1982 that he made his first short film, Vincent, a six-minute stop-motion film about a young boy who fantasises he is his hero, Vincent Price. His next short, this time live action, would be 1984's Frankenweenie, about a young boy who tries to revive his dead dog. Disney would then fire Burton because Frankenweenie was deemed to be too dark and unsuitable for the family-friendly audience that Disney liked. Burton would impress Paul Rubens enough for him to choose Burton to direct Pee-wee's Big Adventure, and that movie was such a hit 
He followed up with Beetlejuice, which he worked with horror novelist Michael McDowell on the idea of good ghosts being haunted by the living. And to get rid of the living, you need a bioexorcist. Enter stage left Beetlejuice. Burton's ability to produce big hits on no budgets impressed Warner Brothers enough to give him their big budget Batman. And instead of directing the sequel to that or a sequel to Beetlejuice, he then chose Edward Scissorhands as his next project, then followed by Batman Returns. And he was given complete creative control on this huge sequel. Just FYI, Beetlejuice is episode 94, Batman is episode 154, Edward Scissorhands is episode 184, and Batman Returns is 183. While he was knee-deep in production for Batman Returns, production would start on The Nightmare Before Christmas. But really, the story for that starts many, many years before. His childhood in Burbank would provide the inspiration for questioning the different holiday seasons because the weather didn't change much in California, but the seasons and holidays did. Young Tim was fascinated by the different colours and textures each season would offer. And this is not the only movie that provided inspiration from his childhood, because as I mentioned in the episode I did in Edward Scissorhands, that also provided inspiration for that movie. While Burton was working at Disney in the 80s, he wrote a poem, a rewrite of the classic Twas the Night Before Christmas. And he would draw designs for characters of Jack Skellington, his dog Zero and Santa Claus. His creative partner, Rick Heinrichs, who also worked at Disney in the early 80s, worked with him on these storyboards, Heinrichs sculpted characters, and together they pitched the idea for a low-budget stop-motion movie along the lines of the ranking bass Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer. Disney declined to proceed with the project, deeming the tone too weird. At the time, Disney Animation was going through what could be called a bit of a difficult period. This was the years before the Disney Renaissance in the late 80s, and Walt Disney Animation was struggling to capture audiences. Michael Eisner had been brought in to try to save the company, and The Black Cauldron, itself a fairly dark and scary story, had been a critical and commercial failure, with Disney seemingly at rock bottom. The animation division was in serious dire straits, and would end up being relocated from Burbank to Glendale, where fortunes were buoyed by the Great Mouse Detective. Also working at Disney in the early 80s was a guy called Henry Selick. He's going to be important going forward. So Tim Burton was basically off living his best life while Disney floundered in the 80s. But he always thought of The Nightmare Before Christmas. And in 1990, he found out that Disney still owned the rights to his project. And having a great deal of clout from Batman at this point, he approached Disney to acquire the rights to make The Nightmare Before Christmas himself. But Walt Disney Studios chairman Jeffrey Katzenberg, he had different ideas. Because since Burton was flying high and Disney was doing great with recent hits like The Little Mermaid, why didn't they work on the project together? It was a way of proving Disney wasn't just focused on fairy tales and princesses and that they could think outside of the box. And of course, they wanted to work with Tim Burton because who didn't want to work with Tim Burton? The problem was they couldn't really work with Tim Burton because Burton was committed to Batman Returns by this point. And stop motion was laborious and time consuming. But Tim Burton knew a guy, Henry Selick. And together, he and Henry Selick agreed that Selick would direct the movie based on Burton's story and drawings with Burton taking on the role of producer. To adapt his original poem, Burton enlisted Beetlejuice co-writer Michael McDowell to write the screenplay. But creative differences and McDowell's alleged drug problems forced him to leave the project. He would eventually be replaced by Caroline Thompson, 
Burton's writing partner on Edward Scissorhands. Coincidentally, at the time, she was dating Danny Elfman. Danny Elfman, obviously Burton's longtime musical collaborator. And the idea was conceived for The Nightmare Before Christmas to become a musical with music and lyrics, and slightly more than that eventually, from Elfman. But even before Caroline Thompson was involved, Burton and Elfman were collaborating on story and songs. Elfman found a particular affinity with Jack Skellington and would go on to say that he found writing the songs for The Nightmare Before Christmas to be one of the easiest jobs he's ever had due to him feeling so in tune with Jack. And the fact he lived in the same house as Caroline Thompson, who'd had previous success with Tim Burton, might mean that you'd think that she would be a shoo-in for writing the screenplay. But the fact was, was Thompson wasn't initially even considered, despite her previous work with Burton and her current relationship with Elfman. Thompson would eventually be brought onto the project, but only after filming had commenced. And at that point, they only had three songs and a bit of story to work with. Her main task was to flesh out the story of Sally, a ragdoll character desperate for independence, rebelling against her creator slash father figure, Dr. Finkelstein. Thompson would complete her work in one week during a retreat to the coast with Danny Elfman, using his songs as a template for the remainder of her work. Eventually, she and Burton would clash on several issues she had with the overall story, including her belief that the character of Oogie Boogie was racist, something Tim Burton disagreed with, and her dislike of the ending. She didn't think that Jack and Sally's relationship felt earned, and she wanted to rewrite it. But again, Burton disagreed. He would end up taking his frustration out on an editing machine. Their working relationship would deteriorate to the point where, as of 2020, they are not in touch with each other. Obviously, her romantic relationship with Danny Elfman would also end. Filming for The Nightmare Before Christmas started in July 1991, but not at Disney Studios in Glendale. Instead, the production was based in San Francisco Studios, later renamed Skellington Studios in honour of their most famous export. The 35,000 square foot warehouse on 375 7th Street was outfitted with 19 sound stages where 227 puppets were painstakingly assembled and animated. A crew of 120 worked 18 months on the animation side. With pre and post production, the total time spent working on the movie was three years. Set pieces were built no larger than two feet tall and wide, so an animator could easily reach inside and move the puppets around. Each character had to be posed 24 times for every second of animated footage, while many of the scenes required 20 to 30 lighting instruments on top of that. Jack Skellington himself had 400 different heads for a full range of emotion. Sally would have 10 heads with multiple replacement faces in order to preserve her hair. The hardest character to animate was Oogie Boogie. As a large, sack-shaped character, Rick Heinrichs would re-sculpt him several times. The scene where his skin is pulled off to show he's filled with bugs took four months to shoot just on its own. And throughout this process of filming, Tim Burton was really nowhere to be found. He was busy on Batman Returns and rarely visited San Francisco. He was based in Los Angeles at the time. Henry Selick, though, was incredibly hands-on with this movie. He demanded the best from the animation staff, who worked long hours to meet the weekly quotas of the production. Particularly complex scenes like those taking place in Halloween Town Square with numerous characters could take anywhere between two to five days to animate. Everything would be sent to Tim Burton for his approval. But in the time it took for The Nightmare Before Christmas to be completed, Burton had done both Batman Returns and Ed Wood. Production and design offices, a department dedicated to puppets, and a model shop filled with activity and the sound of numerous power tools 
flanked the front of this warehouse. But the back of the building was a little strange. All over the walls, the animators had painted outrageous graffiti, most of it mimicking amusing conversations from the screening room where the crew went over finished shots. And then there was the hole in the wall. Now, you already know Tim Burton had already attacked an editing machine, so no prizes for guessing who did it. But one afternoon, Burton dropped by Selick's office, where the two got into a discussion about a plot point in the movie. Oogie Boogie, the evil boogeyman, is unraveled by Jack at the end of The Nightmare Before Christmas. One of the animators, Kim Blanchett, had the idea to change the revelation that Dr. Finkelstein, the crazed scientist who created Sally, was actually inside of Oogie Boogie, manipulating him like a puppet. And it was a fairly logical change. The character was motivated to use Oogie Boogie to undermine Jack's ambitions because he was envious that Sally was secretly in love with him. But Burton did not agree. He didn't agree so much that he got quite angry and he kicked a hole in the wall. The hole was never repaired. It was graffitied with, this is where Tim's foot was and became the office conversation piece for the remainder of the production. Burton would visit the production five times in just over two years, spending eight to ten days total involved. His name would be above the door, but it was Henry Selick's baby. Selick's job was to make it look and feel like Tim Burton, which is probably why so many people still see this as a Tim Burton movie. Skellington Productions itself would last for just a few more years before Disney closed the studio in 1998, and it was subsequently demolished with Bessie Carmichael Elementary School constructed in its place. Prior to its demolition, Selick led another team of animators at the studio when he went on to direct Roald Dahl's James and the Giant Peach. After filming had been completed, over 109,440 frames had been taken, with inspiration from and homages to Ray Harryhausen, Francis Bacon, Vasily Kandinsky, Charles Adams and Ladislav Starovich, among many others as well as homages to Burton's previous work and some references to the Disney overlords with pyjamas featuring Mickey Mouse and Donald Duck. The House of Mouse may have distanced themselves from the project initially, but Walt Disney Feature Animation did contribute some second layer of traditional animation to animate the ghosts in the movie, although Zero himself was completely stop motion. As Danny Elfman was writing the songs and becoming closer to the character of Jack, finding him as an extension of himself, he wanted to play Jack. He recorded the songs as well as the speaking voice for Jack, but Henry Selick felt the speaking voice wasn't up to the levels of the singing voice. So they would instead hire Chris Sarandon, whose speaking voice matched Elfman's singing voice perfectly. Selick would state in an interview with the Daily Beast that he knew it would upset Elfman to replace him, and he would go to Tim Burton to fire him. It would contribute to causing a wedge between Burton and Elfman that meant they wouldn't work together for another three years. They would eventually come back together for Mars Attacks. That's episode 162 of this podcast. It wasn't the only reason that Elfman was upset, but he'd worked on The Nightmare Before Christmas for two years and he was exhausted and ultimately everything came to a boil and he and Burton would fall out. Elfman wouldn't score Ed Wood because of it, but they did reconcile their friendship eventually and we did get the score for Mars Attacks, which is a lot of fun, actually. I really enjoyed that movie a lot. Vincent Price, who last worked with Burton on Edward Scissorhands, would be cast to play Santa Claus, and originally it was intended for him to voice the intro-outro, a role that would eventually go to Patrick Stewart, but instead would be Kurt, more on that in a bit. Price would record the lines, but his then-wife Coral Brown passed away in May 1991. Price was despondent at the loss of his wife. He would choose to never work again, 
and he himself would pass away in October 1993, coincidentally the same month that this movie was released. Early on in the production of A Nightmare Before Christmas, when Tim Burton's original poem was intended to have a larger role in the story, Patrick Stewart was thought to be ideal for the role of narrator. However, as the movie unfolded and was reshaped, Stewart's parts were cut to simply the opening and closing speeches. He originally recorded a full-length adaptation of the poem. In the end, it was deemed that the Santa in the movie, Ed Ivory, would be better at doing these parts, and Stewart's rendition was left off the final product. The final monologue, I'm going to pop at the end of this episode, but I wanted to say actually a huge thanks to Stewart for actually bringing me the information about this final poem, as well as providing the words for the end finally, because he knows them off my heart and he sent them to me. And as I mentioned, this movie was inspired by the Rankin Bass productions of the early 80s. And it is a slightly subtle thing, but the animation was filmed on threes just to emulate that jerky stop-start quality of the Ranking Bass Productions. You'll notice the animation's possibly not as smooth as it could be, and that is intentional. The look of Halloween Town is entirely German expressionism, which is also intentional. This is something that Burton was also doing on Batman Returns. It has muted colours. It focuses on Halloween colours like green, orange and greys. Christmas Town is an outrageous Dr. Seuss-esque set piece with bright Christmas colours, lots of primary colours. Even the score and musical numbers change to reflect the changing seasons. So songs set in Halloween Town kind of invoke spooky season. Songs set in Christmas Town have Christmas bells in the background. They have an air of whimsy. An interesting little link to the previous episode because last episode I mentioned the hardest scene for them to shoot in The Muppet Christmas Carol was Kermit locking the door. In this, it's the shot where Jack reaches for the doorknob to Christmas Town. Viewers can see the perfect surround reflection of the forest around Jack in the background. And this was all shot in camera with no compositing. They built the set to the reflection. The camera was a hole in the backdrop that was painted looking at the monitor. It had a textured shield built around it so other parts of the set weren't seen. It also had hidden lighting. They used a specially sculpted Jack hand just for this shot. It was essentially a big tube that had the camera lens poking through a tree in the forest. And all the time they had to be careful to not get the camera in the shot. And it is an absolutely wonderful shot in this movie. I also mentioned that during this time, Tim Burton went off and he basically made two of the movies. Well, during the making of The Nightmare Before Christmas, Keanu Reeves also made several movies. And so this is going to be the obligatory Keanu reference for this episode. And if you don't know what that is, basically pretty much every single episode of this podcast has something called the obligatory Keanu reference in it. And it's where I tried to link the movie that I'm featuring with Keanu Reeves because he is the best of men. And it's so hard to link Keanu to animation. The way I'm doing it is by saying that during the period when this movie was made, so this movie was made over a three-year period, and in the early 90s, Keanu was working quite a lot at this point. So here's the six movies that were released during the period that The Nightmare Before Christmas was being made. Point Break, Bill and Ted's Bogus Journey, my Own Private Idaho, Bram Stoker's Dracula, Much Ado About Nothing, and even Cowgirls Get the Blues. It's literally nothing to do with the movie. But honestly, I couldn't find anything else other than maybe something to do with Keanu at Christmas. But I think I've used Babes in Toyland before, so I couldn't use that one again. Now, originally, Disney planned to release this as a Walt Disney feature animation. It was going to be slotted in between Aladdin and The Lion King, Slate of Releases. 
But when does the executive saw this movie? They saw it as being too dark and too scary for kids. So it was instead released on their more adult-orientated Touchstone Pictures label. But they still wanted to hype up the Tim Burton connection, despite Burton not really being all that involved in the production. And so it was marketed as Tim Burton's The Nightmare Before Christmas. And this is why so many people still think this movie was directed by Tim Burton. Henry Selick, while he would understand the reasons behind the name change, would quite rightly be annoyed by the pseudo-erasure of his name on the project. The Nightmare Before Christmas premiered at the New York Film Festival on the 9th of October 1993. It was given a limited release on the 13th of October 1993 before its wide theatrical release on the 29th of October 1993. That wide release is shot to number one at the box office where it stayed for two weeks. Facing competition from The Beverly Hillbillies, Demolition Man and Cool Runnings, it fell to fourth in its fifth week with the releases of The Three Musketeers, Carlito's Way and My Life. On an $18 million budget, The Nightmare Before Christmas would make $50 million domestically in the US on that initial release. It would be re-released the following year and make an additional $8 million internationally. Taking into account all of its re-releases, and it has been re-released many times over the years, it would make a total worldwide gross of $91.2 million. And this is a movie that saw immense success on home video. After being released on VHS on September the 30th, 1994, this success led to the film being considered a cult classic. It led to it being reissued under the Walt Disney Pictures label and re-released on October the 20th, 2006 with a conversion to Disney Digital 3D, a process that had been assisted by Industrial Light and Magic. It's been re-released yearly since 2007, including 4D screenings at the El Capitan Theatre, its most recent re-release in October 2020 in the US, UK, Australia and New Zealand made an additional $2.4 million. And obviously this is a critical darling as well as being a financial success. On Rotten Tomatoes it holds a rating of 95%. The Nightmare Before Christmas was nominated for the Academy Award for Best Vision Effects. It would lose to Jurassic Park. Danny Elfman was nominated for the Golden Globe Award for Best Original Score. He would lose to the score for Heaven and Earth by Kitaro. And Disney have considered doing a sequel to this movie multiple times. They first considered it in 2001, but they preferred computer animation to stop motion. And Tim Burton persuaded Disney to abandon these plans. He constantly fought hard to prevent sequels to The Nightmare Before Christmas because he didn't want Jack to go to the worlds of Thanksgiving or Easter or Valentine's Day. He felt it was crucial to maintain the purity and the heart of the original movie. The computer game The Nightmare Before Christmas, Oogie's Revenge from 2004 does act as a sequel to the movie and Capcom's development team did consult Burton on this particular project. And a new version of The Nightmare Before Christmas was reportedly in production in February 2019 and Disney was exploring either a stop motion sequel or a live action remake. But since then there's been no word on this particular project. An official young adult book sequel called Long Live the Pumpkin Queen, written by Shea Emshaw, features Sally as the main character. That was released in August 2002. There's a haunted mansion ride at Disneyland in California's theme park that's been using the Nightmare Before Christmas overlay since 2001 under the name Haunted Mansion Holiday. The haunted mansion is decorated with props from the movie. Music from the movie is played during the Halloween celebrations at the park. There's audio animatronics of the movie's characters in the ride. 
and Disney installed the same overlay at the Haunted Mansion ride at the Tokyo Disneyland Park in Japan as a result of the popularity and success of their original ride in California. Characters and elements from The Nightmare Before Christmas have been used in a variety of different media. You've got, obviously, video game sequels like The Nightmare Before Christmas, Oogie's Revenge. That came out for PlayStation 2 and Xbox in 2004. The Kingdom Hearts video games also feature the world of The Nightmare Before Christmas. There have been a number of live concerts featuring songs and lines of dialogue performed by members of the cast or well-known celebrities including the most recent one that starred Danny Elfman and Phoebe Bridges here in the UK. But the most enduring legacy of this movie is probably the success of stop-motion animated films. Henry Selig followed up The Nightmare Before Christmas with a stop-motion animated version of Roald Dahl's James and the Giant Peach, and it wasn't as popular as The Nightmare Before Christmas, but it is still regarded as a bit of a cult classic. In 2005, Burton would go on to direct the stop-motion Corpse Bride for Warner Brothers, once more collaborating with Danny Elfman on the soundtrack. And Henry Selick, he would also continue along the road of stop-motion because in order to rebuild the failing business, he joined the stop-motion studio Will Vinton Studios in 2003. He served as a supervising director. That business would later change its name to Leica and Coraline, a film adaptation of the Neil Gaiman book, would be the company's debut release. Henry Senek would direct Coraline. He'd get a nomination for Best Animated Feature. And as a result of the success of Coraline, Leica's film division would expand and produce Paranorman, Box Trolls, Kubo and the Two Strings, and Missing Link. They would all go on to receive critical acclaim and be nominated for Academy Awards. Merchandise at the time of the release of The Nightmare Before Christmas was scarce, but as the years progressed and Disney finally embraced the treasure that it had on its hands, it finally became part of Walt Disney Animation. Its legacy is etched in the pop culture that has sprung from this movie. Characters of Jack and Sally remain relatable. They can be found on clothing, toys and homeware. And I've mentioned a couple of times the age-old debate of is it a Halloween movie? Is it a Christmas movie? But the fact that we have to ask this question actually works in its favour because it is both. It means it's cross-seasonal. It's not just to be enjoyed at Halloween or Christmas. It can actually be enjoyed any time of the year. And again, one of the many joys of covering animation on this podcast is the fact that animation is so universal. It can be enjoyed by all ages. And while this movie does have scary elements for children, it is definitely something that you should introduce to children, in my opinion, as young as possible. Because Halloween as a concept is supposed to be quite scary. Christmas as a concept is supposed to be warm and filled with joy. And the fact that this movie can combine these two elements and do it so successfully is something that really needs to be celebrated. And additionally, movies like this, movies like Coraline, movies that do have slightly scary elements for children, they do tend to be going out of favour a little bit with Hollywood studios. We should be pushing the boundaries of what's acceptable. We should be teaching children that it's actually okay to be a little bit scared because ultimately the good guys will always win. And usually, I say all of this towards the end of the episodes that I do, but I wanted to do something a little bit different. So I wanted to summarise my thoughts on this movie before I go into my regular summary. And there is a reason for that, and I am going to come to that. But this is a movie that's perennial, it's long-lasting, it's universal, it is something that everyone should see. Just for the fact of how miraculous this movie is, literally every single frame of this movie is art. It's so beautiful. And the fact that they did this successfully 
in the early 90s, we now have studios like Leica who are pushing this format forward. Honestly, it brings me so much joy because I can't tell you how much I love stop motion. I've done so many episodes on stop motion animation for that reason, because I feel like this is an art form that if we're not careful, is going to die because of the cost and of the time that it takes to make these movies. If we have kids that are going out and they're watching movies like The Nightmare Before Christmas and Coraline and Kubo and the Two Streams, and even the most recent Guillermo del Toro Pinocchio movie, which I have not seen yet because I've been so busy working on this podcast, I've not even managed to see that movie. That movie has everything that I want out of a movie. It has stop motion animation, it has Guillermo del Toro, and I still have not managed to see it. But I've heard that it's absolutely spectacular. Can't wait to see it. But we need more movies like that because the more movies we get like that, the more that Hollywood is going to invest in movies like this. And the children that grow up watching movies like this are going to grow up to become animators making movies like this. So that's why it's so important that we still have movies like this being enjoyed, being watched, being made. It's something that I'm really passionate about as not just a podcaster, but as someone who genuinely loves the field of animation. It's why I do animation season. It's why I wanted this movie to start animation season. Because to me, it's so important to highlight these movies. I mean, you know what I think now of this movie and, and how I feel about what this movie did for the industry. Let's go into some thoughts from other people. So I like to ask on social media, what do you think of the movies that I'm covering? I like to ask on Patreon and on Twitter, Instagram and Facebook. I have been asking on Hive and Mastodon. But to be honest, Hive's been down for two weeks anyway. So let's just focus on the ones that we know we're going to get something from. And I'm going to start with the patrons. I'm going to start with perennial commenter Andy, of course. And he says, Is it a Halloween movie? Is it a Christmas movie? Is it a Tim Burton movie? Is it a Henry Selleck movie? The Nightmare Before Christmas has transcended being just a mere movie. An oddity when it came out. The theatre was pretty empty when I saw it on the opening weekend. It is now fully part of the cultural ether. Essentially, the sole reason why Hot Topic is still in business. While I've stepped back a bit in annual viewings, I still really enjoy the movie. The songs criminally unrecognised when they came out are some of Danny Elfman's best post-Oingo Boingo compositions. The voices are sharp and the animation is top-notch, even almost 30 years later. And I'm sure I don't need to tell you, Andy also has a podcast. It is called Geek Salad and it is one of my favourite podcasts. And I've actually been on it recently, kind of, sort of. I'd recorded a little bit with Andy for the movies of 1992. Next year, we're going to be doing the movies of 1993. So, Andy, you know what I'm going to be talking about in the movies of 1993 because you are obviously going to be inviting me back to that. Geek Salad, it's just a group of people who are so passionate about pretty much everything geek culture. So, movies, music, TV shows, games, songs, anything and everything. I'm going to put some information in the show notes for Geek Salad. Make sure you have a listen. They've got so many episodes of quality podcasts to listen to. The final patron comment comes from Brendan. And Brendan just simply says, it's just undeniably magical even after all these years. I mean, totally agree. How can I not? Moving over to Twitter. We're going to start with at Bergfan004, who says, love the movie and love Jack and Sally. As So Wizard Podcast said, I absolutely loved it and was there in the dark times when Disney wouldn't acknowledge it and any merch was a godsend. 
Now it's kind of played out and being baby's first goth experience and the deluge of merch makes me kind of meh towards it. At Smith underscore CB says it's baby's first goth exposure as a compliment. At KJ Evans 2 said, like, I know it's set at Christmas, but I always think of it as a Halloween movie. Though I suppose that's the point, isn't it? Halloween characters invading a Christmas film. At Best Film Overpod said, The Jack and Sally branding has Mandela affected what's actually a very tacked on love story against the greater journey of wanting something new. Is Jack wrong to aspire? The film would suggest yes. Is the moral to be happy in oneself or to stay in one's own lane? The story of how the task of firing Danny Elfman from the spoken element of Jack Skellington fell to his then partner is an all-time blow. As I said off the top, a film whose branding I feel has overpowered its narrative and overall film quality. At Drumble said, Seeing this in the cinema was the second time after Disney's Pinocchio, an animated movie truly broadened my definition of what was possible. I was both lost in the story, yet equally aware that human hands had painstakingly crafted it, which only made it more magical. I had the honour of working with Henry on Wendell and Wilde, and he described stop motion as an art form that's already old to begin with. Tactile and tangible, update it or bolster it too much with other effects and it loses its appeal. Its imperfections are what make it. Nightmare will always be my personal favourite because of its place in my childhood. It's a story as lean as Jack himself and the songs by Elfman are indelible. Burton's fingerprints don't compete with Selick's genius and it looks gloriously shot on film. Old to begin with. At J. Biss said, One of my family's favourites. Fun songs, age-old question, is it a Halloween or Christmas movie? At the set that film said, as much as people want to credit Tim Burton for this masterpiece, it's really Caroline Thompson's beautiful script, Danny Elfman's fantastic score and songwriting, Henry Selick's wonderful direction, and the impeccable work by all the stop-motion animators that make this a classic. At DT Masterson says, Jack Skellington grows bored with success, abruptly changes fields, considers himself an expert immediately, locks up the actual expert, makes a catastrophic muddle of things, and has to free the expert to bail him out. Like Elon, Jack Skellington is the villain of his own story. At Binge Lord Dan said, People who think The Nightmare Before Christmas has never been a Halloween movie, it's a Christmas movie set in Halloween Town, like Die Hard isn't a Los Angeles movie, it's a Christmas movie set in Los Angeles. Moving over to Instagram, we have at It's a Musical Pod who said, One of my favourite Christmas films, I'll watch it every Christmas Eve as I do some last minute rapping, the songs are delightful and I especially love the Nightmare Revisited album that was released in the mid-2000s. Best song is What's This and Making Christmas. It's a shame Tim Burton gets all the credit and not Henry Selick. At SP underscore film viewers said, Is it a Halloween or a Christmas movie? Who cares? It's a fantastic piece of stop motion and all the score and songs are top notch. At Friendly Sparpod said, I have such a fondness for this movie. Danny Elfman's singing is so good. I almost wish he got the chance to voice Jack in the scenes as well. And Ken Page as Oogie Boogie is light. And finally, over on Facebook, we have James who says, It's a family tradition to have this playing while we wrap the Christmas presents. And What's This is a mainstay in our festive playlist. An amazing masterclass in stop motion. And although Burton didn't have that much to do with the actual animation, his style and vision oozes from every frame. The superstar, though, has to be the sublime score by Danny Elfman and his voice is absolutely perfect for the singing Jack. Only watched it once this December, so it's about time for another viewing. 
hopefully it'll be lashing down and blowing again outside as what could be better than watching the nightmare before Christmas all warm and snuggly inside while the weather is doing its worst outside. And a huge, huge thank you to everyone who's given a comment to this episode on The Nightmare Before Christmas, to the final episode of 2022. Thank you so much to the patrons and to everyone on Twitter, Instagram and Facebook. Some amazing comments as always. And just, yeah, thank you so much for your comments for The Nightmare Before Christmas. In the far-reaching corners of everyone's minds is a magical place, a place that reminds us of faraway lands of festivities and fun and of a magical place where there's always one. One character who breaks the rules, one person who thinks, who grows, who learns, who excites and who links this magical, mystical, faraway place to our childhoods, to our imaginations, to our favours and grace. It's not real, it's fake, it couldn't possibly be this magical, mystical, faraway tree. A tree with a door to a holiday town, a town with a seasonal greeting jumped down. Be it Halloween or Christmas, Easter or Thanksgiving, if your imagination flows, it means you're still living. It means you can share joy and excitement and drama while you're listening to Verbal Diorama. Thank you for listening. As always, I would love to hear your thoughts on The Nightmare Before Christmas. And you have been amazing listeners in 2022. You have been getting involved. You have helped this podcast grow so much. And I'm so grateful. But if you do enjoy what I do and you do want to help, you can get involved. You can leave a rating or review wherever you found this podcast. You can retweet or like posts on social media. I am at Verbal Diorama on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, Letterboxd, Hive and Mastodon. Or you could simply tell your friends and family about this podcast and you can share this podcast with your friends and family. And if you like this episode on The Nightmare Before Christmas, you might also like the following movies slash episodes. And really the only two episodes that I could possibly recommend, apart from all of the Tim Burton stuff that I've done in the past, which there's so much, is episode 63, Coraline, because that is Henry Selick moving on, doing that movie with Laika. It is a very similar movie to The Nightmare Before Christmas in many respects, actually. But it's such a beautifully animated movie. It is a little bit scary, but absolutely something that you should introduce to your children. And you should watch yourself because, let's remember, animation is not just for children. And if you want to know what a Tim Burton stop-motion animated movie looks like, then look no further than episode 135, Corpse Bride. That is the stop-motion movie that he made in 2005. And The Nightmare Before Christmas, Coraline and Corpse Bride would actually be a really great kind of three-part animation season for you to watch at home because they have similarities, they have differences. They're all quite similar in tone and style, but they're all quite unique as well in what they're trying to say. And so if you haven't seen those movies, please watch them and please listen to the episodes that I did on them. Next episode, so I'm going to be taking a bit of a break over Christmas because I'll be honest, doing this podcast, it's kind of hard work and I have been doing it pretty much every week for the whole year. So I'm a little bit tired and I am looking forward to celebrating the holidays with my family and friends. So I'm going to be doing that instead of releasing an episode next week. But the week after, animation season continues into January with a stark environmental warning from 1992 and it was aimed at a family audience but clearly we didn't listen because global warming is still a thing 
I know there's a lot of naysayers out there, but the planet is getting hotter. It's also the first time Robin Williams voiced an animated character because this was before he did the genie in Aladdin as well. It has big name voices at the time like Christian Slater and Samantha Mathis and Tim Curry as well, voicing a rather sexy bad guy. <laughs> and I'm looking forward to watching this movie again because I've not seen it since I was a kid. And the first episode of 2023 is going to be Fern Gully, The Last Rainforest. And it is a stark environmental warning. It's about the culling of the rainforests and it's got some magical fairies in it. It is very much a family animated movie, but I'm looking forward to going into the making of Fern Gully. That will be coming out the first Thursday in January. If you do want to support this podcast financially, you're under no obligation and you never will be, especially right now when everything is really expensive and Honestly, sometimes I wonder why and how people support me the way they do. But people do, and I'm so grateful. If you want to join them, you can do. It's verbaldiorama.com slash Patreon. But as always, a huge thank you to the amazing patrons of Verbal Diorama. They are Simon E, Sade, Claudia, Simon B, Laurel, Derek, Thurn, Kristen, Kat, Andy, Mike, Griff, Luke, Emily, Michael, Scott, Brendan, Ian, Lisa, Sam, Will, Jack, Dave, Chris, Stuart, Sunny, Drew, Nicholas, Zoe, Kev, Pete, Heather, Danny, Ali, Tyler, and Jonathan. What's this? What's this? There's patrons everywhere. I do have a merch store. It's verbaldiorama.com slash merch. You can email me verbaldiorama at gmail.com if you want to say hi. And also, you can find me at filmstories.co.uk and you can find articles that I write. But really, I just want to say huge thank you to you all for listening. Merry Christmas. Happy holidays from me, from Evie, from the whole team that is Verbal Diorama, which is basically me. And occasionally Evie will be sitting somewhere in the background, like supervising what I'm doing. It's been a tremendous 2022 for this podcast. And I'm so looking forward to what 2023 will offer. But have an amazing holiday season. Enjoy your time with family and friends over the Christmas period. And I will see you again in January. And finally, everything worked out just fine. Christmas was saved that there wasn't much time. But after that night, things were never the same. Each holiday now knew the other one's name. And though that one Christmas things got out of hand, I'm still rather fond of that skeleton man. So many years later, I thought I'd drop in, and there was old Jack still looking quite thin, with four or five skeleton children at hand playing strange little tunes in their xylophone band. And I asked old Jack, do you remember the night when the sky was so dark and the moon shone so bright, when a million small children pretended to sleep, nearly didn't have Christmas at all, so to speak? And would, if you could, turn that mighty clock back to that long, faithful night? Now think carefully, Jack. Would you do the whole thing all over again, knowing what you know now, knowing what you knew then? And he smiled like the old pumpkin king that I knew, then turned and asked softly of me, wouldn't you? Bye. Movie should know, movie should